Don't you just love it when you can confidently say that someone has your back? Hi, Dave Lee here, and that's the feeling I have with UCARE. Anytime I call them up with a Medicare question, I know without a doubt that a real person will answer, and they will work through my issues no matter how long it takes, and they won't hang up until I completely understand what's going on. Their people and customer service are second to none, and it's why UCARE has people-powered health plans. Don't hesitate to reach out to UCARE for help. Learn more at UCARE.org slash Medicare. This paid endorsement brought to you by UCARE. Today on my first concert. So the band Burton Cummings and who, the whoever came down here to record at K Bank. Wow! And Tom was the engineer, and he remembers they re- recorded this song, and they were really into the song. He said, "We've got, I think we got a hit going or something. We should, you know, change our name." And somehow the name Guess Who originated here, and they stuck with it. What a story! I never knew that. I, I wonder that. I wonder if Randy Bachman was in the band back in the day. Dave Lee here along with Davide, our producer, and it's great to welcome Steve Weiss with us. Now, this is, uh, we're doing it from Creation Studio, the show today. That's his studio. And there's some great legendary performers that have been through here. Uh, Steve has been in charge of that, and he's got some great stories we're going to have him share, including what his first concert was in just a minute. Don't forget, you can download this series on Apple, on Spotify, at TalkNorth.com, wherever you get your podcasts. It's as easy as that. And I would subscribe if you could, because then it just shows up, which is really handy. And it's all brought to you by the folks at Propane.com, by Aquarius, here from the Aquarius Home Studios, and AquariusHomeServices.com, and also from our friends at StarBank, the Bank of TalkNorth.com, and from the people at UCARE. We'll tell you all about those folks coming up through the show. But first of all, Steve, thanks for coming in. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Well, Dave, thank you for inviting me to stop by here. I'm happy to be here. Well, you... uh, Oh, I I was here already. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, you own this place. That's right. But you've owned it since, what, mid-80s, I think, right? Uh, I moved into this building, which is sort of a legendary historic place. It's been a studio since 1954. But I moved into the building in 1986 uh, into Studio B, which is across the hall from here. And then in 1988, I bought the building. And, and we have been here since. And we're in South Minneapolis, for folks who don't know, down yeah. in Nicollet, kind of a nondescript. Uh, but there have been a lot of famous people that have walked yeah. through these doors. Nondescript on purpose. Yes. <laughs> I know I had to drive by about 10 times first time I came here. Uh, Steve... Uh, let's go to the title of the show or the podcast here called My First Concert. Now, you have a couple, but uh, one was your brother and one was with a, a legendary band. Tell us about those. Well, uh, so if I, I think about the music that or what got me into what I'm doing now was influenced by my older brother. He's four years older than me. And uh, when he was in high school, I would have been in junior high. And we grew up in Farmington, Minnesota. And uh, he formed a band with his best friend. My brother played bass, and uh, his best friend was the drummer. They had a keyboard player and a guitar player, and they would play you know, high school dances, and they would play the Dakota County Fair teen tent. And uh, then, of course, during the fair, there would always be a battle of the bands, and some other band would play. And as it turned out back in those days, the other band was headed up by the guy that I eventually became a partner with in creation. No kidding. Yeah, but it was really haphazard how it got to be that way. 
I got to ask you about that whole that whole thing started sure. here in just a minute as well. And your brother was doing was he doing a surf band? Was that what he was doing? Yeah, or? they were playing you know Beach Boys mm-hmm. and uh, Jan and Dean, and you know it was the mid sixties. Yeah. Okay, then your first concert uh, as far as a, a, a big uh, rock and roll band. You know, I thought about this and tried to remember the years, and and uh, so you know, my the first one that really left an impact on me that said, you know, this is big time because it wasn't an American artist; it was a British artist. Was uh, I saw Jeff Beck in 1969, and uh, they were playing at an old facility in Minneapolis, right across the river. It was the Minneapolis Labor Temple, and I think they ran concerts there for just about a year. And uh, but some of them are very historic, and there's not much known about them. But there might be a couple of posters floating around. But um, so I, I went to that one. I drove up from Farmington and found my way into Minneapolis. You know, just a country boy, and, and <laughs> uh, went to the Labor Temple and and uh, immediately bought a Jeff Beck record, and then I had to buy a Rod Stewart record. And sure, you know, and, and uh, so 1969. The summer of 69, I would have been 18 on my way to 19. and uh, So it was a big deal for me. What made you go see Jeff Beck? You know, I, I probably heard the music either on KQRS, which back in those days was playing, was pretty progressive rock, and Jeff Beck's band was progressive rock. But oddly, there was... On weekend nights, or maybe it was just Friday nights, I, I forget. But there wasn't really much FM back then. Mm-mm. But AM radio stations, as you well know, were uh, there was a station that came out of Little Rock, Arkansas. That at the in the evening, a lot of stations were sunrise to sunset, and then they'd go off the air or something and make way for other stations to turn their power up. And this program would come out of Little Rock, Arkansas. Uh, a disc jockey named Clyde Clifford <laughs> and his opening music was very psychedelic and you know a lot of sound effects kind of stuff but he played great songs so I first heard Ben Sidron on that station and I probably heard Jeff Beck uh, on that station and we could from Little Rock we could pick him up on our AM radio in Farmington Minnesota so they had a license that they could probably turn up the wattage in the evening on weekends and and uh, so he would have this program, and he played the greatest music, you know, and it just really, I remember it to this day, now 50 years later, you know, it's or more, 55 years later, it, uh, that uh, he left an indelible wrinkle in my brain, you know. Boy, well, it's a good one to leave an indelible yeah. wrinkle in the brain. Gosh, the days of the, I, I know the Little Rock Station you're talking about, and I remember as a kid, same thing, listening to, I think KOMA out of Oklahoma City, certainly uh, WS out of Chicago. But I remember as a kid, we would get uh, the signals from uh, uh, Manitoba, CJOB and CKY. They were, of course, they were playing the Guess Who and yep. some of those bands. And and yeah, that was really uh, the late at night uh, radio was just booming in. But yeah, the AM is now you don't even have an electric vehicles. I don't think anymore. Well, you know, there's a, a brief story I'll tell you when you mentioned the Guess Who. The Guess Who became the Guess Who in that room across the hallway here. No fooling. When back in uh, like 1963 or 64, it was K-Bank Studios, and one of the local legends you know, in our world, in my world, Tom Jung, who was a partner with Herb Pilhofer, and they formed Sound 80. But Tom was an engineer at K-Bank 
in back in the '60s, and they would always run a special. You could, you know, come get three or four hours of recording time and 345s for 400 bucks or something. <laughs> so the band Burton Cummings and the whoever came down here to record at K Bank. Wow! And Tom was the engineer, and he remembers they re- recorded this song, and they were really into the song. He said, "We've got, I think we got a hit going or something. We should, you know, change our name." And somehow the name Guess Who originated here, and they stuck with it. What a story! I never knew that. I, I wonder that. I wonder if Randy Bachman was in the band back in the day. Uh, am I remembering this right? Was it Burton Cummings that I... Yes, Burton Cummings yeah. was a leader, and I think Bachman played for him and then went off to He very BTO. well could have been, yeah. Wow. But Tom told me the story. They drove down from <laughs> Winnipeg to Minneapolis because the studio was one of the biggest in the region, you know, and probably picked up a few ballroom gigs on the way or something. Oh, God. I still remember listening to Share the Land over the prairies as the northern lights are dancing up in the sky up, yeah. up, up near... Uh, a Canadian border. Wow. that's I never knew that. What a great story that is. Well, Steve Weiss is with us. This is my first concert. Dave Lee here. Great to have you with. It's brought to you by our friends at UCARE. Also brought to you by our friends at Propane.com. And the timely conversation on Propane.com, and then more with Steve in just a minute, is what's going on right now with the carbon footprint that we're all hoping that we can uh, lower, right? But how in the heck do we do it? There is a reliability and there's affordability, which is extremely important during Minnesota's four distinct seasons with propane. That's a clean energy solution for tomorrow. It's available today that's ready to work alongside all the other energy sources. And you can go to propane.com and you can read more. In fact, I would say if it's piqued your curiosity, go to their website and find out about propane, which produces 43% fewer emissions than electricity generated from the U.S. grid. That's a pretty powerful statement, but it's energy stored on site. It's independent from the vulnerabilities of the grid, and we've heard about those. And propane's benefits don't end there. Major advances being made today for renewable propane. What's good about that, it's compatible with traditional propane, so what happens, it requires no additional infrastructure investments. Pretty big stuff. We all need to use our low-carbon alternatives. That includes propane to safely provide energy, reliability, resiliency, and affordability. So propane, that's the right energy right now. You can find out more about what propane can do for you at propane.com. Steve Weiss is our guest from Creation Studio where some, I mean, we've already got one legendary story about the Guess Who coming in here and, and getting the name of the band actually when they came in, which is great. Steve, let's talk about some of the people that you've had through here. I know, for example, Paula Abdul. Can you share anything about her experience here? Sure. Uh, so Paula, my my first interactions with Paula was in would have been in 1985 when I was working at one of my other facilities, and I was working with Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, and they wound up recording. They got the deal to record Janet Jackson's first big record, the Control album. And so I wound up recording that album with those guys. And at that time, Paula was Janet's choreographer. Hmm. She's the one. And when Janet started coming out of her little girl, teenager phase into being a, a mature woman, uh, they her record label hired somebody. And Paula was famous. I think she was the choreographer for the, the Lakers uh, cheerleaders. And Yes, that's kind of featured on the Showtime special. Uh, that was on HBO, which I watched. Yeah, that yeah. was, yeah, crazy. Yeah, and so I became familiar with her at that point. And then 
it was subsequent to that where I I completed my work life with Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. And my partner at that time, we were in search of a new facility. We had been in a in a duplex home in Bloomington for 10 and a half years and moved in on a month-to-month basis looking for a place to be and wound up staying there 10 years <laughs> and did a lot of work out there. But in the last few years, I worked a lot with Terry and Jimmy as they were starting and building their career. Patty Austin and Thelma Houston and Cheryl Lynn and uh, a, an artist named Sherelle, all of that was done in the basement of a duplex in Bloomington. <laughs> Never knew that. And and then we separated working, and Monty Moyer was their other songwriter in the, the trio, and they had Monty signed to an agreement, and Monty left working with them. But Monty and I were good friends and working on music. And so he was hired by Zamba Jive Records, the president of Zamba Jive, uh, to come to England and produce an album for a woman named Precious Wilson. And she sang... Uh, the title song on a movie called The Jewel of the Nile. It had Michael Douglas and Kathleen Turner and Danny DeVito. And, but the hit song on that ep- album was the closing song was by an artist named Billy Ocean. When the going gets tough, the tough get going. And that became a huge hit. But we did the opening song, and, which wasn't as big a song, but, and then all the rest of uh, Precious's uh, album. And then they asked us to, to continue with another artist named Ruby Turner. And so we spent about uh, eight weeks at Battery Studios in London making this record and then came back. But a few days before I returned, my partner at that time said, I think I found a place. When are you coming home? I said, well, I'll be home in a few days. He said, well, we can move into the old cookhouse building, which became available. And I said, when? He said, well, when are you going to be here? And it was just (laughs) before Christmas in 85. And we moved in here like January 2nd of 86 and moved into Studio B out of the, the house in Bloomington. Oh, was it night to day for you? Um, yeah, pretty much, because all of a sudden I was in I was downtown instead of on Old Shakopee Road, and it afforded us a lot more opportunities to have a, a larger profile. But then once I got in Studio B, then other deals started coming. And also in 86, we made, not only did we move, but we made the decision to go from analog tape to digital tape, mm. and it was a big deal back then. Yeah, I was going to ask you, how uh, how stressful was that? Well, it was incredibly stressful because now everything is digital, but back sure. then, a 24-track Sony machine, they had a, a stationary head machine, just like an analog tape recorder. They were $115,000. Mm. And and so that was a serious commitment. And then we bought a, a bigger recording console at the same time. So when we moved in here, we made a commitment. This is what we're going to do for a while, and we better make it work. <laughs> and so once we got it up and running in, in 86, then work started to come in from major labels because it was just fortuitous that at that time, the Minneapolis sound was becoming a thing. And record labels were taking notice. And so they were starting to sign artists out of Minneapolis. And, you know, because of Prince and because of the time, there was a bunch of other artists that were getting noticed. So we, we had a little bit of work that came from A&M and Capitol and Columbia and RCA and Polygram. And, you know, so work was coming in. And then they were sending artists from England, a guy named, uh, a really talented singer named Junior, just went by the name Junior. His name was Junior Giscombe. And Junior came here 
from uh, England, from London, and uh, made a record here across the hall. And so then I started working through all of that. I started working with a producer named Oliver Lieber. And Oliver got known because of his father and because of the work that he had done. Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller were a famous songwriting team, and Oliver was one of two sons. Very talented musician, Oliver, drummer, guitar player, you know, just very good. And he got a contract with Virgin Records, who had signed Paula Abdul to a deal. And so then she came here and recorded three songs on her first record which was called uh, I'll Be Forever Your Girl. Oh, yeah. Big hit record for her. Big how, hit record, yeah. How was it for her? She's coming from dancing entertainment to becoming a singer. Was it challenging? It was so challenging. <laughs> <laughs> she, and, but she worked really hard, just as hard as she would work to, to be able to dance the way she did and to teach people how to do it. She worked that hard at singing, but I remember her being so frustrated because we'd... I mean, she was here for five days singing two songs, basically. But at one point in one night, I remember her just being so frustrated that she just backed away from the microphone and screamed, I'm a dancer, I'm not a singer, you know, and walked out in the hallway. And, oh. and so we gave her 15 minutes. and and But it, it was unlike now where you can do basically anything non-destructively on a computer. It was destructive recording and we would build the vocal sometimes a syllable at a time. Punch in, punch out, and then go two words later and then punch in and punch out again. And you had to be really accurate with it. Because if you went in on something that you'd spent 45 minutes getting right and you were a little sloppy with your punch in, punch out, you had just destroyed that. I got really good at you know, leading and, and sort of mind-locking with the singer because you knew just by looking at her... Was she gonna? How was she gonna mouth the word? When was she gonna close the word, and then come out and record? You know, and down to milliseconds. That's but you got you were so focused on that as an engineer. Nowadays, you don't have to do that anymore. No, even you can back up and do anything over again. Even little things like splice tape. Yeah, and a razor blade. Yeah. Yeah, well, it, once you splice the tape and it's wrong, it's pretty hard to put it back together. <laughs> I've done it yes. too often, and you can. Yeah, but uh, yeah, that punching and punching out is a a talent often overlooked and really not used anymore. But it worked out for her. Ends up being a judge on American Idol and judging other musicians. So she must yeah. have had a pretty good experience here. Oh, she had a great experience. She loved being here, and you know we, we were made her feel at home, and she, yeah. she got out of L.A. and all the pressures that went along with that. You know, I'll, I'll tell you a real quick story about that. So back then, you would you would record something, then you'd have to FedEx it overnight to the A&R person at the label or something. And then when it was all done, you'd go and you'd have a listening session in the lab, at the label. And so we went to Beverly Hills, Virgin Records was there. And I went in and sat down with uh, the person in charge of her deal, this woman named Gemma Corfield. And so we're sitting down and start playing the music and Gemma is there and, and uh, Paula's there and Oliver and myself and I forget a couple of other people were there. And I started listening to it and I thought, Why? that's something wrong, that's not right. And I realized in a few seconds that the speakers were wired out of phase in their listening room. And I went, really, you, this is where you listen to all of your records? <laughs> I said, can I have a few minutes? 
And uh, does anybody have a wire cutter? And so we found one. I went behind the, the speakers and I clipped the wires and I turned them around and kind of twisted them together and put a little tape over it. And we listened and I went, that's much better now. <laughs> And it kind of, it was embarrassing for them, but they all agreed. And and you know if you're sitting off center or something or in the back of the room, you maybe don't notice out of phase. But in the center, the low frequency, the kick drum and the bass guitar don't sound like they're coming from the middle. They sound like they're coming out of each speaker because they're out of phase with each other. And the bass is a little light; it it sort of diminishes a little bit. But when you put them together, they comes from left right to the center and then all of a sudden you go okay that's the focus i was looking for thank goodness you thank goodness you were there you mentioned janet jackson with terry and jimmy and it was my understanding and i don't know if it's true or not she liked to record at night but yeah and so did they so i wound up working a lot at of night a lot yeah but janet came here she was just barely 18 i think came with her girlfriend and a bodyguard because her father sent the bodyguard along and because he didn't know anybody. You're going where in Minneapolis with who kind of. <laughs> yes. And so he sent the bodyguard along and, and uh, you know, she had a, a great time and she was incredibly talented, but very shy. And then after that record, all of a sudden Janet really bloomed into this person that everybody knows. Yeah. You know, after the Control record and then Rhythm Nation, er, that one is, you know, even more notorious. But Control had five or six singles on it, you know, What Have You Done For Me Lately and Control and Pleasure Principle. And there was, you know, big songs that came on that record. And I think it sold seven, eight million copies or something. Yeah, it did all right. Yeah. The uh, your time at Battery Studios in London, do you when you go there, obviously you know you know your craft, uh, and you showed them at AM Records how much you knew, but did did you do you pick up anything there? Do you learn anything there when you were over doing stuff? Well, absolutely. And interestingly, so Zamba Jive was the record label mm-hmm. and uh, uh, Clive Calder, I think was his name, if I'm remembering correctly, it's a long time ago, forty years when but uh, he put us in, in one of the studios there, and Battery became kind of a big deal. And they were in this complex that you'd go out the back door and across the alley and into another building, and then there'd be more studios there. They had this several buildings in this area, and, and one of them they ran a big rental company out of. It was called Dream Hire. And then Dream Hire went on and, and had a big rental facility in New York. But I remember him coming in, listening to us, working on Precious Record, and... And congrat, you know, thanking us, saying it sounds really good. You guys really like it. He said, and we, you know, during the conversation, he said, you know, we we get a lot of people coming here. You know, it was kind of a big label at that time. They'd done a lot of R and B music, and he said, I'll tell you this little, however you put it, a little gem of wisdom or something. But he said, you know, I get a lot of stuff, and the difference between a really good demo and a great song is just about ten percent. But he said that last ten percent is the really hard stuff, and and so we, it he kind of put that into our mind as like if you think you've got something good, make sure you've got it good, and and don't just say that's as good as I'm going to get it because it can always be a little better. And that's how he left that with me, and then I've operated to this day with that same thing. It's like it's never quite done, you know. It's, you can always do something a little better. 
Steve Weiss is with us. We're in Creation Studios, which is Steve's studio, and we're going to kind of explore some other folks that you've dealt with through the years, which is quite a, a list of names. Thanks to Star Bank. They make the show possible here, and they are our bank at talknorth.com, so that tells you how good we think they are. And you want to learn some things about uh, banking, they could teach them, but you want to go in there more than that. You want to, you want to get a loan uh, need met, for ha- perhaps. Star Bank does it. They do it well. Family-owned, Minnesota-based. Uh, no hold times on the phone. They actually answer it right away. So you'll be talking to somebody right as soon as you call them. And that's how banking should be. But I would say this as well. We talked about, Steve and I were talking about technology going you know, from analog to digital. And, of course, we know you want to go from the phone to, to your app. Understand that. And they've got all that. So if you want the high-tech stuff, that's not a problem. You'll want that. That's convenient, too. But I'm just saying when you go in there, particularly for a loan, I don't know if you're getting an RV or doing a home mortgage or whatever it is, maybe ag equipment, uh, it's nice to sit down and talk with somebody that looks you right in the eye, and you get to know them as well. They'll know you. I guarantee you that. Uh, But find out what they can do for you. If a loan's in your future, find out about the fact that they can kind of eliminate a lot of that red tape. Loans are subject to a loan application approval, as you know. Starbank.net. Easy, easy website. Minnesota Bank, Minnesota May, been around for years. Member FDIC and Equal Housing Lender. Steve Weiss is with us from Creation Studio. Uh, Steve, let's talk about uh, some of the other people that have uh, have come through this studio and th- that you've dealt with. Uh, let's see. So, so through here, well, it, you know, it kind of goes in phases. So yeah. there's a period of time that, like I talked about earlier when the Minneapolis sound was was uh, really prominent nationwide, Billboard magazine uh, came into town and they dedicated one whole issue to the sound of Minneapolis or the Minneapolis sound or something back then. And so there was a number of artists that that I was working with, a group called Centerfold that got signed to a deal and... and uh, uh, Starlini Young and her uh, partner came through, and she's the wife of James Taylor, who was the lead singer in Cool and the Gang, and she had a, a record deal, and and so we made a record with her, Monty Moyer and I did, and then um, you know that was in late eighties. You know, I worked a lot with, and I had mentioned Ben Sidron earlier because I got, I heard Ben Sidron on the the Arkansas AM radio station, and and I always dug Ben a lot. And then I got to meet Ben and work with Ben starting in 1984 at my other studio in Bloomington before I got here. But we became great friends, and he continued to work here, and we're still friends to this day. Uh, we just visited him in February, uh, where he lives in Palm Springs now, but. Ben and I were in the middle of of the third record that of of his, not producing for somebody else. He did well, actually fourth. He did on the cool side, and and uh, too hot to touch. And uh, we were doing one more record after that, and I think we were three or four songs into it. And he came in one day and he said. Uh, well, so it's not going to be this, the Ben Sidron record anymore. It's going to be a Steve Miller record. And I was like, what? You know, did the the uh, Scooby-Doo, what? <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, he then I got to know his history a little bit and, he and how he and Steve had worked together in the early 60s in Madison, Wisconsin. And they had a band he called the, uh, it was the Miller Skaggs Sidron Band. And Boz Skaggs was in it, and but he said it became Powerful. the Steve Miller band because Steve owned the PA. 
And so, so he and Boz and Steve split up, but they both went to San Francisco. Ben stayed in Madison, completed his PhD, and then went on to have the career, the illustrious career that he's had. But uh, so we finished recording this record here, and then you know went out to uh, Capitol Records. And Steve was, he had to complete this project for Capital. It was his last record. He owed him that contractually. And it was an interesting because it wasn't Keep on Rocking Me, Baby, or Take the Money and Run. It was a little bluesy, jazzy record that uh, was called Born to Be Blue, which is a famous song that Mel Torme did. And Steve sang it on the record. But when Sonny Gets Blue and Willow Weep for Me and My Little Red Top, and it had all these great sort of funky, groovy, Ben Sidron influenced songs, but Steve's voice, and then he played guitar in it, but he'd do his three-part harmony thing. And so I wound up doing the record here, all the basic tracks, and then went to Capitol, and we did some vocals and some guitars, and I went to K. Smith Studios in, New- in Seattle, where uh, Steve's father-in-law owned a studio, but he was owned FM radio stations up there in Lester Smith, and he was a partner with Danny Kay, the famous sort of Hollywood mm. actor, dancer, comedian. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, then we went to New York, and we worked and recorded Phil Woods. And um, But anyway, so this record was done all over, but then brought it back here and assembled the record, all the pieces of things, you know, pieces of guitar tracks that we made into guitar solos and or into rhythm parts where Steve wouldn't complete the track, but we'd assemble it and make pieces out of it. But at that time, unlike nowadays where you can just copy, paste, copy, paste, it was like, let's see, how can I do that? And flashing back a little bit when you were talking about did I pick up anything besides the wisdom of Clive Calder I discovered a device called the Infernal Machine 90 by a company it was called Publisson and it was built by this French guy and at that time it was far and away the most advanced piece of digital uh, memory stereo memory everybody else Yamaha Kai everybody else is making mono short memory two three seconds of memory this you could get a minute and a half of stereo memory at high sampling rate and so they had a Publison over there and I came back from London after making those records and I said where can I get a Publison there was one dealer in the U.S. and the thing cost eleven thousand dollars or something and we bought one, and we had the first one in one of the very first ones in the United States. And, and I used that a lot. And you could change pitch on it. It had reverb and delay. It had, you could sample sounds into it, edit them, and then play them from a keyboard. This is a very highly technologically advanced device at that time. And so Steve's, a lot of Steve's vocals on that record went into the Publisan and out of the Publisan, maybe just a little sharper or a little flatter or something in pitch because there was no auto-tuning or anything. No. So you had to listen. And maybe he rushed a little bit so I could record the sample in of his voice and then punch it back in a little bit later on the track. And with the digital tape machine that I was using, I could do it non-destructively in rehearsal mode until I got it absolutely the way I wanted. And then you just take it out of rehearsal mode and hit the auto punch and it would punch in and out by itself. And so you could make sure you didn't destroy anything. So we were advancing. But wound up then, Steve came here, loved the record. We had a little listening party here. And he said, it's exactly how I would have done it. And Ben and I just looked at each other and went, okay. (laughs) And, and so that was in the spring or s- spring of 88. 
and and uh, then he decided he was going to come out of his semi-retirement and go back on the road and do a tour. And so he basically absorbed Ben and Ben's band and Ben's engineer. And they all became the Steve Miller band, and he asked me to go out and mix the front of house for him. So that then went on for seven years for me of working with Steve on the road, and I wound up making another record with him at his uh, facility in Sun Valley, Idaho. Being out there doing the front-end engineering, did you enjoy that? It was the greatest time for me. I had never done it before except a few times in clubs in the 70s. Uh, we were producing an artist named Jeff Harrington, and we'd play Williams Pub here, but we'd go do colleges. So, you know, probably had 20 dates or something on a lower scale, but all of a sudden it was the big time. You know, we were out with Steve Miller and... The crew the first year had just come off the road doing a year and a half with Pink Floyd or something. I mean, these are all, you know, up Accomplished, in the, the elite yeah. level. And the beauty of it, and, and luckily for me, was that I traveled with the band. So I was on their schedule. So we'd come to the theater that first year at, you know, three in the afternoon, sound check at four, time off, do the show at seven. As soon as the show's done, backstage, on the bus, back to the hotel or whatever. I didn't have to deal with gear. And so, you know, in that respect, I have to say that I never really paid my dues, you know, from working clubs and lugging gear and doing all that stuff on a large scale. I did it on a small scale and then was offered the opportunity to join the big time. And, and it worked out because um, I came to, I approached live sound mixing from a different standpoint. And it was all about clarity, stereo placement, making sure you understood the lyrics, and not just about playing loud and putting pressure into a room or something. And, and Steve appreciated that. Is there a concert or a venue that stood out for you in those years? Um, well, some of the legendary places that we played, uh, the Beacon Theater in New York, we played the Greek Theater in Los Angeles, uh, Universal Amphitheater. But after the first year, we did about 25 theaters around the country, some of the beautiful Fox Theaters, these ornate, large mm -hmm. facilities, you know, maybe three, 4,000 seat, larger than the Orpheum kind of in some cities. But I, the, about five or six shows in, Steve was realizing... You know, people were going, what is this willow weep for what? You know, who, who is this guy playing in a sport coat, you know, and guitar with a band and they're wearing sport coats? And they'd be hollering, jungle love, you know. <laughs> and, and so Steve said after about a half a dozen shows, he said, we'll finish this tour out. But um, next year he said, we're going to go out and play the sheds and do the greatest hits. And so then we did that. And, and uh, the sheds being the big outdoor amphitheaters. And there's a whole circuit of those 40 or 50 of them around the country. And, you know, the things that, I mean, the, the ones, I mean, there's a few that stood out. We, mostly we had a great opening act that would do, but then a few of them we opened for somebody. So one year we opened for ZZ Top uh, on the Saturday night of the Texas State Fair. Oh boy. And, you know, so we're in Dallas in the Cotton Bowl. And uh, so it was Santana, Steve Miller Band, and ZZ Top. And, and, you know, those that was fun doing that. And then one summer we did 10 shows opening for the Grateful Dead. And that was all football stadiums. 
and and that's a scene that was unlike <laughs> our the normal shed, oh. you know, where you're doing fifteen, sixteen thousand, maybe up to twenty thousand people. Or so all of a sudden you're at uh, Soldier Field and there's sixty thousand people there, and, and and but then one of them that stands out. If I'll get to it eventually. Oh no, this is too good, Steve. You kidding me? <laughs> well, we played an Earth Day concert at the Universal Amphitheater with Paul McCartney and Wings. And so the lineup was uh, Natalie Merchant and 10,000 Maniacs, who was big artist at that time, the Kenny Loggins band, the Steve Miller band kind of unplugged. So Steve and another guitar player, the other guitar player, and Billy Peterson and Gordy Knudsen played a little percussion, but it was sort of an unplugged set. And then uh, Don Henley's band, and then Paul McCartney and Wings played. And what so it, you can imagine the back, it was, yeah, kind of all day sort of. And you can imagine the backstage scene was, <laughs> you know, unbelievable. There must have been 50 limousines and, oh, yeah. and uh, everybody was there. So when they came out and played Hey Jude, then Ringo walked on and Rod Stewart walked on stage. And all these people <laughs> came from backstage and sang the Hey Jude chorus. And so that one kind of stands out as, you know, being sort of epic. And then meeting Paul and being on his bus with him with which was you know he invited us up for a little bit I mean it's like where do you go up from there I, I don't know nice guy super nice guy yeah completely cordial he didn't have to do that with everything else that was going on but he took the time yeah no kidding what a memory uh, we're talking with Steve Weiss. He is the owner of Creation Studio, where we're recording the podcast today. Dave Lee here, my first concert. Davide is our producer. We'll be back with uh, some closing comments from Steve in just a minute. I want to thank our friends at Aquarius Home Services and Connecticut for making this possible. Uh, really good people. Uh, one thing I do know for sure about Aquarius, having worked with them for all these years, is they do make things easier and they do make things better, especially with your home water. And that's how I got to know them uh, over 20 years ago. When I first heard about it, I thought, well, I'm going to find out about this on-demand efficiency that's non-electric. And that kind of uh, boggles your mind a little bit, saying, how do they do this? And the name says it, Connecticut. It's, they solve water problems like orange rust stains, or maybe you're going up to the cabin, you've got the old white-scale buildup up there and funny odors. This removes contaminants. And when you hear news stories about contaminants, and you want to get rid of those, I'd call, I'd call the folks at Aquarius and say, tell me more about that. It could be city water, it could be wall water, but you're going to enjoy amazing worry-free water every day like I do. And as your independent authorized Connecticut dealer, their goal at Aquarius Home Services is to always provide absolutely amazing service and earn that right to be recommended. recommended. So I would schedule your free water analysis today. Why wouldn't you, right? At ConnecticutMN.com. That's what I did. And then you can find out what's in there or what isn't in there, and they'll tell you all about it. But they really are good at what they do. Very sincere. And as I said, I you don't stick with a company, in my case, for over 20 years and look forward to every time you chat with them. Good people. In fact, I talked with them just less than a week ago. AquariusHomeServices.com. I get a hold of them. One of our great sponsors here. On my first concert, Dave with you, Steve. Weiss is nice enough to take time out of a busy schedule. Steve, through the years now, in the studio world, we, you talked about analog to digital. How has it changed now? How, what's different from now as when you posted, started the studio back in the mid-'80s? Well, it started the studio in 1974. So I, I came really the ground up from sort of having two mono, two four-channel mono mixers 
linked on a Y chord and to pan something left or right on my four track at that time, you'd turn the volume up on the left side and down on the right side and that would swing the signal to the <laughs> left. That's how we panned stereo. And then went to eight track and 16 track analog and then 24 track analog and then 24 track digital and then ADATs because I saw the light coming on that, the, the modular digital recorders and then... Pro Tools and other DAW, Digital Audio Workstations, came along. So I've been through a, the entire evolution and seen the, the record label industry, you know, evolve from you'd get signed, you'd have an A&R artist, and, and they would record videos for you early on in the video world, you know, MTV and VH1 and some of those stations, and they would burn up all your budget. So artists weren't making any money, but they were out on the road touring, and and to now where almost, I mean, you look at the industry and 95% of the industry are independent artists trying to make their way and find their way onto a streaming platform somehow and figure out how do I get paid doing that. And I guess I maybe still sell a few CDs and make money that way and or raise the ticket prices to $100. And I mean, you asked me about things that stood out. I had a brief period of time where I was involved with uh, a guy named Timothy Leary, who was famous in the uh, 60s, 70s, and 80s. And we actually recorded a little uh, project and, and, and sold it through a publishing company with him. And, and, uh, but he told me one time, he said, he's talking about, you know, he would do this stand-up philosophy, he called it. Correct, yeah. And, and uh, he got into politics and religion, but he got into science at the same time. And then he got into evolution. And, and he had this great saying, he said, evolution, she doesn't like final forms. <laughs> and so you got to think of the record industry as, you know, sure. sort of going along with and agreeing with that uh, philosophy is that it's constantly changing and we're all just trying to keep up, you know, it's, it's a constant struggle. And as Davide well knows, it's like, what? That started when? Last week? You know, <laughs> and uh, so how do I get on it? You know, and, uh, and that's sort of where it's at nowadays. And, and then also artists have just gotten younger. I mean, girls are coming through the studio here, and, and their parents bring them. They go, my daughter's really great. She's going to turn 14 next week. And, <laughs> and go, yeah, you know, and, and maybe she is because she's had the opportunity, unlike people 30 years ago or 40 years ago, they didn't get to see everybody dancing, singing, and talking about their careers on television or on you know, social media the way it is now. So more and more young people are involved in it. And then, but at the same time, the industry... Because of that, there are great songwriters who are out and finding their way through the smoke and clutter, the debris of the industry. They'll find their way out because anything good is, the, you know, the what do they say? The, the cream floats to the top mm -hmm. or something. And, and uh, so the, the great musicians will find their way to the top. The great singers, the great songwriters, they're always going to be there. They just have to sort of wade through the muck a little more. Did you ever have an experience, this is kind of way out of left field, I guess, but, you know, I'm thinking about great studios. I think about Sun Studios, which they still use on mm -hmm. occasion and had the chance to visit there not long ago. But the uh, did you ever have a situation where you were like a Sam Phillips where Elvis came in and, of course, uh, he wasn't too thrilled with Elvis, but his assistant kept pestering him saying, you know, hey, now listen, does that happen to you at all? Um, you know, I've had... Uh 
great sort of random experiences. We'd worked, I don't know if you remember the Oak Ridge Boys. Oh, they yeah. came to the studio in, in Bloomington. And, and uh, like I said earlier, Patty Austin comes out of New York and she flies into Minneapolis with her mother. And Patty's was the top first called jingle singer at that time. She could sing anything, read anything off a piece of paper in one pass. And she would be off to three you know studios in Manhattan in an afternoon singing stuff. And she flies into Minneapolis and drives to this house on Old Shakopee Road and has to walk down in the basement <laughs> of this little place. And I'm thinking, you know, I'm, it's, I'm sure it's underwhelming for her, <laughs> <Yes>. you know. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I've had uh, one, you know, incredible experience. And I, I think back to it now is uh, when I was in Bloomington. And we did this film, a documentary that was being done about the movie or about the the Agent Orange that so many Vietnam veterans were having to deal with. And so a local film writer or filmmaker was making this movie about it, and they got Martin Sheen to be the voice of it. Now he was just coming out of having made Apocalypse Now, and he had that great voice. I mean, it was an octave lower than what I'm talking right now, and he he just was so cool. And he came in with that voice, and I had seen that, and it left a big impression on me because I was 18 and 68. And, uh, you know, was fortunate that I didn't have to go to uh, Vietnam, but for any number of reasons. But he came in, and, you know, we're, he's reading, he had 40 paragraphs to read for this movie. It's a little one hour documentary. And so he started reading, and, and the producer and I were sitting there going, holy, you know, this is unbelievable. And, and he'd say, what do you think? He'd say, oh, you know, you, can you just, we're going to rewrite the script a little, change this word or that, and do it again. He said, sure, and he'd do it. And he was just so cool, so nice. And I just remember one instance where he read this long paragraph, and it was five, six, seven sentences, pretty long, it extended, and it had, you know, some really poignant things in it. But And I'll remember this, and I've used this many times, but talking about these soldiers and everybody, they're getting sick and they don't know why. And, and you know, they're in the field and they sprayed Agent Orange, which defoliated the entire countryside so they could see the enemy. But these guys don't couldn't figure it out. And, and the line was, doubts are more cruel than the worst truths. And so these guys were sick and didn't know why. If someone would just tell them, you've got Agent Orange, yes, you're going to die, or yes, we can do something for you. But he read through this whole thing and it just like dropped you know, that was great. Don't have to do it again. He said, let me try it once more. And he did it more emotionally, deeper, with with more emphasis on everything. that. And this was one of the sort of high points near the end of the movie, this paragraph. And, you know, you just went, that's why he's a Hollywood star. He's a big star. This is what he does. This is what the directors that work with him and the other people and here I am in my little place in Bloomington, down in the basement, <laughs> and I got to work with Martin Sheen. And that one was a, a big moment, too. Yeah, well, there's an extra 10% from one of the great ones, right? Yep. Steve, uh, before you go, uh, stories about this building, because there's a great history to it. Well, I'll be quick with this. So the building was a, a movie theater, a little neighborhood theater, not a fancy one, uh, that built in 1914. So we're getting close to 110 years old now in this facility. Closed in about 1952, roughly, the historical records that I've been able to find. And in 1954, a young man who lived here, and he'd been working 
occasionally out of the old Schmidt Music Building downtown. And in that building, everybody knows that old one with the, the score on the wall and the mm-hmm. side of the wall. But up on the third floor, there was a little performing auditorium. And on the fourth floor was a little control room. And they used to do radio broadcasts out of there. And they had some microphones and a couple tape machines. And, and this young kid named Bruce Swedeen and his father bought that stuff. And they bought this building and they moved in here. And he was about, I think, 21 at that time. And got successful. He'd take his tape machines out and these big bands, Count Basie and other ones, they'd come around, they'd do a regional tour of ballrooms. And so the big bands would play and Bruce would drag all this heavy stuff out, big, heavy, you know, 60-pound mic stands. And and he'd record these groups and it would wound up going back into Chicago. And the guys in Chicago said, well, this is a really good recording. Who's doing this stuff? And they discovered Bruce. And and so he got headhunted and moved to Chicago. And wound up uh, meeting Quincy Jones there. And then the rest of Quincy Jones and Bruce Swedeen's history is legendary because he was Quincy's engineer forever until uh, the end of his career. Having recorded all the big Quincy hits, including all the Michael Jackson stuff. So Bruce was the engineer on Off the Wall and Thriller and Bad. And, you know, the big Michael Jackson you know, 100 million selling kind of albums. But he had his humble beginnings in this building. And But in one of the very, in the early days, there's a picture on the back wall of this woman and a man. And in those days, people would dress up so the guy's got a tie on and a suit, you know, and, and he's singing a jingle for something back then. And the woman was um, Jeannie Arlen Peterson. And, and, uh, That would have been about 1955. So then in 2012, so how many years later is that? That That's 52, no, 57 years later. uh, I brought Bruce Swedeen back up here, convinced him to fly out of Florida. And he was retired living in Ocala, Florida with his wife and and his horses. And and Boo, his about six foot high German, or uh, uh, Great Dane dog <laughs> that had saliva hanging out of his mouth like a Komodo <laughs> dragon all the time. And then he'd shake his head and it would yeah. go flying. But anyway, so we talked Bruce into coming back here. And and he had two days. One, one evening, we invited students and teachers from the various schools, colleges in, around town to come and hear this guy who was the most famous engineer in the world kind of at that time or, you know, had historically been that. And then the next night, invited the old guys, the engineers that had been around, the musicians that had been around, and Bruce's old friends. So we had two nights of this stuff. But then the third day he was here, we set up a recording session, and Jeannie was still with us playing and singing. And so Patty sang, Jeannie played piano, Patty Peterson, her daughter, Billy Peterson played bass, Paul Peterson, her son, played drums. And Bruce recorded it. So from 1955 to 2012, he had recorded Jeannie, and then, what, 57 years later, recorded Jeannie again. And so that was very, it meant a lot to him at that point. And to me, because I'm sitting in in what used to be Bruce's studio, it is now mine, and I'm sitting next to this guy and recording this. And, and it was set up on purpose. I wanted to make this happen, and fortunately we did. And Neither one of them are with us now, but that little piece of history is uh, forever, uh, you know, around. And and uh, Bruce 
took it back down to his uh, studio in in Florida and mixed it for us and sent uh, have the audio of that and we have it as wave files now. Yeah. And yeah, and their work is still relatable. Yeah. Jeannie played great on it. Bruce had such a fun time, you know, and being saying the same things that he'd said for 50 years, you know, <laughs> making the same jokes on the talk back and you know, it was it just yeah. was so much fun for him to do it and and uh, you know, to work with and of course he knew Jeannie's husband at that time, uh, Willard Peterson Sr. His namesake Billy is, you know, one of my best friends now for the last forty-five years. And but Willard was um, senior was a famous uh, musician in the cities. Was the very first organ player at Metropolitan Stadium when the Twins moved here in what sixty-three or something. Sixty-one, yeah, sixty-one. And Willard Peterson was the organist. I did not know that. And then he passed, and Jeannie Peterson became the organist then for the Met's, Twins. Yeah, wow. for the Twins. And so their their history is ever present and precedes them and will live on after them. And, oh my gosh! Yeah, you know, jingle sports. Uh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. But that little little thing to be able to put those two back together again that with that many years separating them was uh, you know I don't know how often that you get a chance to do that you know. No. Well, that worked well. Good idea. Yeah. To say the least. Worked out. Yeah. No kidding. What are your projects now? What are you working on right now? Um, there's interestingly in the back room as we're speaking is a group called the Five Six Seven Eights, and they're recording these three Japanese women, and they're now they've been at this for about thirty years, so these aren't kids anymore. Drums, bass, guitar, but they were they got notorious because Quentin Tarantino had them in his movies Kill Bill. I don't know if they were in both of them, but they were in one of the two Kill Bills. And they got sort of notorious, and it's kind of surf music a little bit, you know. I mean, they're still doing it and still playing the same way. And so they're just down the hallway from us right now. And so that's it, these kind of things happen around the studio. You just, you know, it changes uh, every day is something different. And um, myself personally, um, I, I'm working on a project, and I have been for about 10 or 12 years with a partner and we're recording and creating songs to put up on the internet and see if we can get streamed on Spotify and some of the other Amazon music and Apple music. And so we've done this now for about 12 years, I guess. And we've recorded over a thousand songs and, and in a very simple kind of way. And it's, that's working out. So that's one of the things you got to do a lot of things. Yeah. But you enjoy it, obviously. You still have a great passion for it. I still do, yeah. Do you find artists want to uh, perform for you from Miami or Los Angeles, and can you do the recording here or the mixing here? How does that work nowadays? Any well, different? Well, it's in this room, uh, Paul and Ricky Peterson work in this room a lot, and they get sent music frequently. You know, Somebody will say, I want you to put organ on it. So Ricky's B3 is sitting right here next to us. And uh, so they'll send him a track and he'll put his organ part on it. Or, you know, Paul might put some bass and guitar and something and then send the files back to uh, wherever the artist is from. They're, they're known as, you know, first call specialists kind of. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, 
uh, Karen Allison, who's a very well-known jazz singer from, I think she comes out of Omaha originally, spent a lot of time in Kansas City, is now living in New York, but, you know, was on Concord Records. She had five, six, seven records or something on Concord label, which was a very elite jazz label and Grammy nominated multiple times. And and uh, she wanted to do a, a couple of original songs where she wasn't doing standards or Brazilian music or something. And and so she hired Ricky to um, produce the songs, and we did it in the back room and mixed the project. And I said, "What well, is this for an album?" She said, "No, I'll probably just release these as singles and get them played on CD Baby through the you know the streaming services." And so from you know '60s '70s surf music to uh, sophisticated jazz singer doing pop and country songs. <laughs> well, you've kind of had to run the gamut, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. So you get a little bit of everything here. Yeah. What Have we left anything out? Anything you want to close with that I haven't touched on? Um, I, You know, I think we might say something to any aspiring uh, young singer-songwriters is, or, or musicians, you know, if they want to do things, uh, you know, you're only going to be successful if you stick to it. You can't just think, I'm going to write a hit song and then I'm going to get rich and then I'm going to do something else because the likelihood of that happening is winning the lottery. Mm -hmm. And so if you have the passion for it, put in the time, you know, do the diligence and, uh, and keep at it. And those are the people who work their way to success as opposed to stumbling onto it, you know. Steve, congratulations. It's it's great sitting down and chatting with you. I know there's much more that could be said, and uh, I'll look forward to seeing you again, but I really appreciate you sharing time here on the Thank show. Thank you very much. I warned you earlier. I said, don't put a microphone in front of me because I'll use it. <laughs> well, I just love the fact that I don't have to break for traffic and weather together every 10 oh, minutes on the 8th, so yeah. I'm excited about it. Steve, thank you for letting us be here, too, by the way. Dave, thank you very much. Java Day, thank you, as always, for producing this. We're in Creation Studios. Uh, Steve Weiss, this is his company, and, of course, the stories are legendary and, and hopefully continue uh, to remain that way. In the meantime, I want to say thank you to the folks at propane.com, at starbank.net, at aquariushomeservices.com, and also our good friends at UCARE for making this show possible. My first concert, it's available at Apple, at Spotify, wherever you get your downloads, or at talknorth.com, and I will see you next week.